The Fifth Mansions, Chapter 2 of The Interior Castles by St. Teresa of Avila. This is a Discerning Hearts recording, read by Chris McGregor. The Interior Castles, or the Mansions, by St. Teresa of Avila, translated by the Benedictines of Stanbrook. You may imagine that there is no more left to be described of the contents of this mansion, but a great deal remains to be told. For as I said, it contains favors of various degrees. I think there is nothing to add about the prayer of union, but when the soul on which God bestows this grace disposes itself for their reception, I could tell you much about the marvels our Lord works in it. I will describe some of them in my own way, also the state in which they leave the soul, and will use a suitable comparison to elucidate the matter, explaining that though we that we take no active part in this work of God within us, yet we may do much to prepare ourselves to receive this grace. You have heard how wonderfully silk is made, in a way such as God alone could plan, how it all comes from an egg resembling a tiny peppercorn. Not having seen it myself, I only know of it by hearsay, so if the facts are inaccurate, the fault will not be mine. When, in the warm weather, the mulberry trees come into leaf, the little egg, which was lifeless before its food was ready, begins to live. The caterpillar nourishes itself upon the mulberry leaves until, when it has grown large, people place near it small twigs upon which, of its own accord, it spins silk from its tiny mouth until it has made a narrow little cocoon in which it buries itself. Then this large and ugly worm leaves the cocoon as a lovely little white butterfly. If we had not seen this, but had only heard of it as an old legend, who could believe it? Could we persuade ourselves that insects so utterly without the use of reason as a silkworm or a bee would work with such industry and skill in our service that the poor little silkworm loses its life over the task? This would suffice for a short meditation, sisters, without my adding more, for you may learn from it wonders and the wisdom of God. How if we know the properties of all things? It is most profitable to ponder over the grandeurs of creation and to exult in being the brides of such a wise and mighty king. Let us return to our subject. The silkworm symbolizes the soul which begins to live when, kindled by the Holy Spirit, it commences using the ordinary aids given by God to all and applies the remedies left by him in his church, such as regular confession, religious books, and sermons. These are the cure for a soul that in its negligence and sins and liable to fall into temptation. Then it comes to life and continues nourishing itself on this food and on devout meditation until it has attained full vigor, which is the essential point, for I attach no importance to the rest. When the silkworm is full grown, as I told you in the first part of this chapter, it begins to spin silk and to build the house wherein it must die. By this house, when speaking of the soul, I mean Christ. I think I read or heard somewhere either that our life is hid in Christ or in God, which means the same thing, or that Christ is our life. It makes little difference to my meaning which of these quotations is correct. This shows, my daughters, how much 
by God's grace, we can do by preparing his home for ourselves towards making him our dwelling place as he is in the prayer of union. You will suppose that I mean we can take away from or add something to God when I say that he is our home and that we can make this home and dwell in it by our own power. Indeed, we can, though we can neither deprive God of anything nor add aught to him. Yet we can take away from and add to ourselves, like the silkworms. The little we can do will hardly have been accomplished when this insignificant work of ours, which amounts to nothing at all, will be united by God to his greatness, and thus enhanced with such immense value that our Lord himself will be the reward of our toil. Although he has had the greatest share in it, he will join our trifling pains to the bitter sufferings he endured for us and make them one. Forward then, my daughters, hasten over your work and build the little cocoon. Let us renounce self-love and self-will, care for nothing earthly, do penance, pray, mortify ourselves, be obedient, and perform all the other good works of which you know. Act up to your light. You have been taught your duties. Die. Die, as the silkworm does, when it has fulfilled the office of its creation, and you will see God and be immersed in his greatness as the little silkworm is enveloped in its cocoon. Understand that when I say you will see God, I mean in the manner described in which he manifests himself in this kind of union. Now let us see what becomes of the silkworm, for all I have been saying leads to this. As soon as, by means of this prayer, the soul has become entirely dead to the world, it comes forth like a lovely little white butterfly. Oh, how great God is! How beautiful is the soul after having been immersed in God's grandeur and united closely to him, but for a short time. Indeed, I do not think it is ever as long as half an hour. Truly, the spirit does not recognize itself, being as different from what it was as if the white butterfly from the repulsive caterpillar it does not know how it could have merited so great a good, or rather, whence this grace came, which it well knows it merits not. The soul desires to praise our Lord, and longs to sacrifice itself and die a thousand deaths for him. It feels an unconquerable desire for great crosses. It would like to perform the most severe penances. It sighs for solitude. It would have all men know God while it is bitterly grieved at seeing them offend him. These matters will be described more fully in the next mansion. There they are the same nature, yet in a more advanced state, the effects are far stronger. Because, as I told you, if after the soul has received these favors, it strives to make still farther progress, it will experience great things. Oh, to see the restlessness of this charming little butterfly, although never in its life has it been more tranquil and at peace. May God be praised. It knows not where to stay nor to take its rest. Everything on earth disgusts it after what it has experienced, particularly when God has often given it this wine which leaves fresh graces behind it after every drought. It despises the work it did while yet a caterpillar, the slow weaving of its cocoon thread by thread. Its wings have grown, and it can fly. Could it be content to crawl? 
All that it can do for God seems nothing to the soul compared with its desire. It no longer wonders at what the saints bore for him, knowing by experience how our Lord aids and transforms the soul until it no longer seems the same in character and appearance. Formerly, it feared penance. Now it is strong. It wanted courage to forsake relations, friends, or possessions. Neither its actions, its resolutions, nor separation from those it loved could detach the soul, but rather seemed to increase its fondness. Now it finds even their rightful claims a burden. Fearing contact with them, lest it should offend God, it wearies of everything, realizing that no true rest can be found in creatures. I seem to have enlarged on this subject, yet far more might be said about it. Those who have received this favor will think I have treated it too briefly. No wonder this pretty butterfly, estranged from earthly things, seeks repose elsewhere. Where can the poor little creature go? It cannot return to whence it came, for, as I told you, that is not the soul's power. Do what it will, but depends upon God's pleasure. Alas, what fresh trials begin to afflict the mind! Who would expect this after such a sublime grace? In fact, in one way or another, we must carry the cross all our lives. If people told me that ever since attaining to the prayer of union, they have enjoyed constant peace and consolation, I should reply that they could never have reached that state, but that at most, if they had arrived as far as the last mansion, their emotion must have been some spiritual satisfaction joined to physical debility. It might even have been a false sweetness caused by the devil, who gives peace for a time, only to wage far fiercer war later on. I do not mean that those who reach this stage possess no peace. They do so in a very high degree, for their sorrows, though extremely severe, are so beneficial and proceed from so good a source as to procure both peace and happiness. Discontent with this world gives such a painful longing to quit it that if the heart finds comfort, it is solely from the thought that God wishes it to remain here in banishment. Even this is not enough to reconcile it to fate, for after all the gifts received, it is not yet so entirely surrendered to the will of God as it afterwards becomes. Here, although conformed to his will, the soul fears an unconquerable reluctance to submit for our Lord has not given it higher grace. During prayer, this grief breaks forth in floods of tears, probably from the great pain felt at seeing God offended and at thinking how many souls, both heretics and the heathens, are lost eternally. And keenest grief of all, Christians also. The soul realizes the greatness of God's mercy and knows that however wicked men are, they may still repent and be saved. Yet it fears that many precipitate themselves into hell. O oh, infinite greatness of God! A few years ago, indeed perhaps but a few days, this soul thought of nothing but itself. Who has made it feel such tormenting cares? If we tried for many years to obtain such sorrow by means of meditation, we could not succeed. God help me! If for long days and years I considered how great a wrong it is that God should be offended and that lost souls are his children and my brethren, if I pondered over the dangers of this world and how blessed it would be to leave this wretched life, would not that suffice? 
No. Daughters, the pain would not be the same, for this, by the help of God, we can obtain by such meditation. But it does not seem to penetrate the very depths of our being, like the other which appears to cut the soul to pieces and grind it to powder through no action, even sometimes with no wish of its own. What is this sorrow, then? Whence did it come? I will tell you. Have you not heard? I quoted the words to you just now, but did not apply them to this meaning. How the bride says that God brought her into the cellar of wine and set in order charity in her. This is what happens here. The soul has so entirely yielded itself into God's hands and is so subdued by love for him that it knows or cares for nothing but that God should dispose of it according to his will. I believe that he only bestows this grace on those he takes entirely for his own. He desires that, without knowing how, that the Spirit should come forth stamped with his seal, for, indeed, it does no more than does the wax when impressed with the signet. It does not mold itself, but need only be in a fit condition, soft and pliable. Even then it does not soften itself, but must merely remain still and submit to the impression. How good thou art, O God! All is done for us by thee, who dost but ask us to give our wills to thee, that we may be plastic as wax in thy hands. You see, sisters, what God does to the soul so that it may know that it is his. He gives it something of his own that which his son possessed when living on earth. He could bestow on greater gift on us. Who could ever have longed more eagerly to leave this life than did Christ, as he said at the Last Supper? With desire have I desired this, O Lord. Does not the bitter death thou art to undergo present itself before thine eyes in all its pain and horror? No, for my ardent love and my desire to save souls are immeasurably stronger than the torments. This deep sorrow I have suffered and still suffer while living here on earth makes other pain seem as nothing in comparison. I have often meditated on this, and I know that the torture a friend of mine has felt and still feels at seeing our Lord sinned against is so unbearable that she would far rather die they continue in such anguish. Then I thought that if a soul whose charity is so weak compared to that of Christ, indeed, in comparison with his, this charity might be said not to exist, experiences this insufferable grief, what must have been the feelings of our Lord Jesus Christ, and what must his life have been? For all things were present before his eyes, and he was the constant witness of the great offenses committed against his father. I believe without doubt that this pained him far more than his most sacred passion. There, at least, he found the end of all his trials, while his agony was allayed by the consolation of gaining our salvation through his death and of proving how he loved his father by suffering for him. Thus, people who urged by fervent love, perform great penances, hardly feel them, but want to do still more, and count even that as little. 
What then must his majesty have felt at thus publicly manifesting his perfect obedience to his father and his love for his brethren? What joy to suffer doing God's will! Yet I think the constant sight of the many sins committed against God and of the numberless souls on their way to hell must have caused him such anguish that, had he not been more than man, one day of such torment would have destroyed not only his life, but many more lives had they been his.